This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. And this is the week of October 11th, 2021. This is the uh, first week post Mike Richards as executive producer. Uh, and we shall see if there is any controversy that, that occurs this week. Spoiler, I don't think the controversy that people are making up has to do with the executive producer. So mm. uh, we'll get right to that. On Monday, October 11th, we have the contestants Jonathan Fisher, an actor originally from Coral Gables, Florida, Jessica Stevens, a statistical research specialist from Nashville, Tennessee, and Matt Amodio, a PhD student from New Haven, Connecticut, whose 38-day cash winnings total $1,518,601. We have the Jeopardy round categories, city nicknames, potpourri, just straight up this one goes to 2011 sporty anagrams biographies and the ickiest of the icky with icky in quotation marks and this round was not out of the ordinary for matamodio um, right he got out to a lead mm, i think he took the lead around clue number Clue number five, mm-hmm. and maintained the maintained a lead throughout this round. So when we got to double jeopardy, that things started to look different. Yeah, things kind of went off the rails for him. Mm-hmm. Um, although Jonathan did get the first couple of clues, that's true. Uh, so he 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 took the lead, which was rare. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's yeah. rare that Matt did not have the lead at any point. I got I got a little mixed up about the the four hundred dollar level of this one goes to twenty eleven. Um, the clue there is from the early eighteen hundreds until twenty eleven. These busy workers carried messages and assisted members in the House of Representatives. Jonathan got that one. That's pages. Mayim added yes, and the Senate still has them. I did not realize that pages for the House of Representatives are a thing of the past. Hmm. Yeah, I guess I didn't either. I just kind of assumed it was for both. Yeah, I like the sporty anagrams category because unlike most sports categories, I was able to get almost all of them. Nice. (laughs) Only because it was wordplay, though. Daily Double number one is in that this one goes to 2011 category at the $600 level. And Jonathan finds this one at the 19th pick. He has $1,600. At this point, uh, Matt's out way in the lead at 7,400. Jessica's at 2,200. So Jonathan's in third place, but he makes it a true daily double and gets the clue. With a landing in July 2011, the 135 mission program using these came to an end. And he got that one correct with what are the space shuttles. And that pulls him up into second place. And at the end of the Jeopardy round, Matt is in the lead with 9,800. Jonathan's at 4,000, Jessica's at 2,400. And we have the double Jeopardy categories. George Washington did it. Medical abbreviations, or med abbreviate. National literary titles. It doesn't mean what it sounds like. Talk like a farmer. And recent movies. 
I realized I am not paying any attention to what's in theaters right now. None. <laughs> no, yeah. Yeah. no awareness of that. I mean, I get that. Like, I haven't, uh, I mean, I've been to one movie. Have I been to a movie? I don't even remember. Oh, yeah, we saw Shang-Chi. That was very good. But I, I, I don't know the last movie we saw in theaters before that. Um, and just, yeah. Honestly, if it's not a kid's movie, I'm not really paying attention. <laughs> yep. If it is not being released to streaming, I do not know about it, which is why I knew In the Heights, which... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I knew In the Heights because I've, I've, yeah. <laughs> I've played at the pit for In the Heights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I figured out the $400. It's what the Meg is in the Jason Statham aquatic actioner i was like well that's got to be a megalodon but that's just because like i sort of worked it out i was not familiar with the with the mm. film no i think um, it's actually meg ryan <laughs> there we go that must be it mm -hmm. so we get uh daily double number two at pick number 22 in the round it's the 1200 dollars of george washington did it uh jonathan finds this one as well he's at 12,800. Behind Jessica's 13,600 and ahead of Matt's 8,600. And he wagers 2,000. He gets the clue. A 1971 proclamation by President George ordered the first this of the District of Columbia. A young George would have done it himself. And Jonathan guesses what is a mayor? But that is a survey. Evidently, George Washington mm -hmm. was a surveyor. Yes. And then back to back, he re he finds the third and final daily double in the very next pick at the $800 level of national literary titles, um, which has turned out to be a category where all of the titles have a nationality within them. Uh, at this point, we've seen Zorba the Greek, the French Lieutenant's Woman, and the Dutch House. Matt and Jessica are in the same at the same numbers they were at prior but at this point Jonathan's down to 10,800 he wagers 3,000 he's looking to make it back and then some uh what he just lost and he gets the clue in this Michael Ondaatje novel a badly burned plane crash victim remembers a fateful love affair and he correctly identifies the English patient yeah so Jonathan Jonathan gets himself into uh, a slight lead at that point, I believe. That's right. So the the kind of question that's been coming up among casual Jeopardy viewers or like folks who are not kind of as tuned into like the behind the scenes stuff is mm -hmm. like, did Matt take a dive? Like, is he is he throwing this game? And like, and they keep pointing to the final Jeopardy. Yeah. Round, but really, I mean, the final Jeopardy round is kind of ir irrelevant. Yeah. Um, I mean, Matt was in third place. He needed right. Jessica and Jonathan to both get it wrong. Right, exactly. First of all, no, nobody does no, that. He didn't. Of no. course not. Of um, course not. Who would do I, that? Nobody would do that. You're making um, $20,000 or more for half an hour of fun. Yeah. I have heard some people saying, well, that would be a, a violation of federal law. Um, and it would be if, like, the Jeopardy production staff or anyone was conspiring. Yeah, yeah. If the Matt, show... Right? Like, 
if you determined you're, you're the result. not you're not like under like federal obligation to like put forth your best effort <laughs> right that's something you do because you've gotten on jeopardy and you want to do a good job and you want to win more money Yes. And you want to stay on the show. Like, what? It gives you really good dopamine. Like, yeah. nobody, nobody's going to just be like, actually, I'm bored of this. Yeah. It's a, it's a foolish idea to think that anyway. I mean, they say they said the same thing, you know, they say the same thing for everyone. When James lost, like, oh, yep. he, 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 he threw the game. He missed stuff that he wouldn't have. He it's stopped like, answering so many questions. Like, that's what happens when they are out buzzing him. Right. That's what happens when you don't get in. Like it, the only reason that Matt or James or players like that have been able to seem and and be so dominant is because they get in first so often. Mm-hmm. I mean, m- most contestants know most of the answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and we saw we saw Matt get a bunch of negs in uh, in this round and and the prior one, but like. We, I mean, we've seen him be a player who buzzes in when he's not 100% sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, when he thinks it's going to come to him or he's like, you know, he's got a name, but he's not totally confident or, you know, like, like we, we know that this is the way that he plays, mm-hmm. you know. So, like, you know, he buzzed in and said bail, but the answer was bushel. He said spawn, but the answer was venom. Uh, there was, there were a couple more yeah. of that kind, right? Like he just, he had, he had a number of like close, but not quite answers that were very much in line with his style of play. Yeah. Um, there are some games where he doesn't get any wrong, but there have been a lot of games where he takes a guess and gets it wrong, but he's $20,000 ahead of everyone else. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's yeah. just in this case, he was behind. Mm-hmm. And it's a Monday game. Maybe maybe the Taco Bell from the night before was giving him trouble. I Who gave knows? him a bad hotel room this time, and he was, like, next to the noisy ice machine. Like, yeah. you know. Who knows? Like, there could be, could be so many reasons that mm-hmm. contribute to it. Not, not, you know, not the least of which being the people he was playing against were also good. Mm-hmm. The, the notion that only one person can be good at a time is absurd. Mm-hmm. The uh, Jeopardy Facebook page oh. frequently makes me want to throw my phone across the room. I whoever is in charge of <laughs> social media for Jeopardy, I'm, s- <laughs> I'm so sorry. They've decided to just let that would be the Wild West. <laughs> sure, I mean at, at a certain point they're probably like, "What am I supposed to do about this?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh. That's what Facebook is turning into. It's breaking my heart. <laughs> anyway. You say turning um, into. I think it's been that way for a while. They used to not let anyone who didn't have a .edu email address on. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Emily, that's like 2005. No. This is, this is not was used the good to. old days, Kyle. <laughs> that was before. That was when it was the Facebook. This was before it was Facebook. You can't, yeah. you can't say that. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's fair. <laughs> um, anyway, right. anyway, at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Matt's in third place at ten thousand six hundred. Jessica is in second at fourteen thousand four hundred, and Jonathan is in first at fourteen thousand six hundred. 
the category is countries of the world, and the clue is Nazi Germany annexed this nation and divided it into regions of the Alps and the Danube. The Allies later divided it into four sectors. Uh, Matt wrote something, crossed it out, and went with what is Poland, and that is incorrect. Uh, Jessica and Jonathan both got it correct with what is Austria. Jessica wagered everything but a dollar, and Jonathan wagered everything, which is a cover bet. Um, mm-hmm. So Jonathan is our winner with $29,200, and Matt's streak ends at 38 games. Mm-hmm. And like, let's just ha- let's have a, a moment of appreciation for Jessica, who outplayed Matt Amodio, but still unfortunately did not yeah. win Jeopardy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, one, like, first, like, Jeopardy round top row clue away mm-hmm. from being in the lead in Final Jeopardy and winning the game. You know what match I would like to see is, like, Jessica versus Jay Sexton versus I don't know who the third person would be there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, like, yeah, three very clearly excellent and capable players who mm-hmm. just got the worst Just got, just deal. like, yeah. <laughs> So on Tuesday, we have the contestants Robinson Gisette Cruz, an art assistant from the Bronx, New York, Brittany Eiberg, a stay-at-home mom from Roswell, Georgia, and Jonathan Fisher, an actor originally from Coral Gables, Florida, whose one-day cash winnings total $29,200. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, You've Been a Great Audience, Let's Introduce the Band, band in quotation marks, our lead singer on bass... At the organ, <laughs> that that very popular instrument for bands, and playing triangle. It was, it was popular at a time. <laughs> it was a fun fun gimmick for the category titles, at least. Yes, I I liked it. I felt for Robinson Gisette not only because it's a very long name to to be waiting on when you get in on the buzzer, but also. Just very clearly nervous, like extremely nervous in that first round. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and got a got a number of of clues incorrect. I think just because of nerves, like seemed surprised when you know he got in and then had a hard time getting an answer out, and mm-hmm. felt felt for him. Yeah, agreed. Uh, nobody took the Phantom of the Opera guess in the great audience category at the $800 level. Uh, the clue is, a Haydn symphony is nicknamed Miracle after the tale that one of these fell and smashed in a miraculously empty audience area. Mm-hmm. What, what else would have fallen? What else? Yeah. A person? Maybe. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, uh, but, like, that that wouldn't be, like, miraculously empty, right? <laughs> right. Like, what's... I don't know. Yeah. A human f- fell and smashed but miraculously they didn't fall on anybody right like yeah, yeah. um no it's it's just i don't i can't imagine what you could guess other than a chandelier yeah that's kind of maybe what they i felt thought like. it was maybe they thought it was too obvious yeah maybe that i i mean i could see that you don't want to necessarily risk it on something that's like uh, this is a total guess so mm-hmm. memorizing jabberwocky is um not a terrible idea <laughs> for also, trivia purposes super fun yeah, uh, yeah, it is. It, it is super fun. Um, at the thousand dollar level of let's introduce the band, we had Lewis Carroll's Frumious Creature, and Jonathan got that one. It's a Bandersnatch. It is a Bandersnatch. Mm-hmm. 
You should shun that Frumia Spandersnatch. Yeah. We had a Jabberwocky clue in our episode. I got that one. You it did. Was the, the, the word Snickersnee. Snick, the Snickersnee. Yeah, yeah. Snickersnee. Yeah. All right. So uh, Daily Devil number one is in the playing triangle category, which, by the way, there is correct technique to playing triangle. Uh, so y'all laugh at like, who playing triangle. There are many wrong ways to do it. And basically only one or two right ways to do it. So let's not, let's not get all judgmental about it. It's at the $400 level. Pick number 17. Brittany finds it. She's at 1400 Jonathan is at 6200 Robinson Gisette is at negative 1000 And she bets it all. She gets the clue. The ancient Greeks compared the constellation Triangulum to this capital letter of theirs. And she gets correct with what is Delta. So she doubles up. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Jonathan's in the lead at 9,000. Brittany is at 4,400, and Robinson Gisette is at 400. We have the double Jeopardy categories. Who directed it? Jesus Geography, Education Firsts, European History, Making a Short Story Long, and In is Out, as in they take the word in out of a word, and then you get mm-hmm. the correct word. I'm sure you did fine in the Jesus Geography category. I did, yeah. Shocking. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure folks are surprised <laughs> to hear that. Um I actually I didn't know that the two thousand dollar one, I maybe if I'd sort of sat and looked at it for a little longer I could have gotten there. Um but I did not get there in time. Uh the two thousand dollar level clue of Jesus geography was the Hebrew name Naum gives us the name of this city where several of the disciples were chosen, and that is Capernaum. C-A-P-E-R-N-A-U-M. Is it Capernaum? Uh, is it Capernaum? Capernaum. Let's see. I mean, um, I, I mean, who knows? It's a dead language. It, 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 is, it, is, it is generally sort of two syllables-ish, Capernaum. Caper, okay. Caper, Capernaum. Okay. Yeah. An A or an E. So yeah, I've been eliding that and I shouldn't. Um, yeah, Capernaum. That one was a triple stumper. We had a, a rebound at the $1,200 level. Uh, the clue there was when Jesus was 12, he went to the festival of Passover in this city, as was the tradition of his parents. Uh, Robinson tried what is Nazareth. Uh, Robinson Gisette tried what is Nazareth, um, but Brittany got the rebound with what is Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Nazareth is like a backwater. Is, yeah, it is significant in that Jesus was from Nazareth. Um, but, you know, there's there are like sort of little um, asides in the in the Gospels where people are saying, you know, you know, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, it's like a it's like a small town. I mean, it's still a small town. Jerusalem as the center of religious observance is sort of important to know. Mm-hmm. All right. Daily Double number two is at the $2,000 level of European history. And Robinson Gisette finds it at the ninth pick. He's at negative 400 at this point. Jonathan is at 17,000 and Brittany's at 4,400. And he wagers 2,000, uh, the maximum possible bid um, and gets the clue though Pippin III founded this Frankish dynasty in 751 its name comes from the many Charleses who ruled it 
And he correctly responds, uh, what is the, the Carol, what are the Carolingians? Yeah. What are the Carolingians? Uh, Daily Double number three comes at the end of the round, pick number 29. Uh, it is the $2,000 level of education firsts. Jonathan finds it. He is up to 29000 already over Brittany's 5200 and Robinson's that's 3600 And he wagers only 1000 He gets a clue. In 1761, Claude Bourgela, who wrote Sur la médecine des chevaux, set up the first school for this profession. And he gets correct with what is a veterinarian. It means on horse medicine. Which is fun. And then the uh, end of round buzzer sounds. So we do not see clue number 30. And at the end of the double Jeopardy round, um, Jonathan's in lock position with $30,000. Brittany's at $5,200. Robinson is at at $3,600. And we have the final Jeopardy category publishing. And the clue, last name of brothers James, John, Joseph, and Fletcher, whose company published magazines with their name as well as books. We go to Robinson Gisette first. Uh, he had started writing, but hadn't finished. He was heading for Pulitzer, and that is incorrect. So uh, he drops down to zero. Brittany has responded, what is Harper? That's what they're looking for. Uh, and she's wagered 2001. That brings her up to 7201. She's going to finish in second place. And Jonathan... Did not come up with it. He has what is Penguin, um, and he's wagered 7,500, which drops him to 22,500, but that uh, still gives him the win. So he'll be our champion going into Wednesday. Yes, indeed. Do you think that the uh, the Harper parents just couldn't think of another J name? You know, I have I have known some parents who gave up on a theme <laughs> partway through <laughs> um, with the names. But yeah, that that is odd, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, on Wednesday, we have the contestants Mary Garvey, a pastor from Huntingdon, Pennsylvania. Ooh, Bilal Ali, yay. Yay. a product manager from Seattle, Washington, and Jonathan Fisher, an actor originally from Coral Gables, Florida, whose two-day cash winnings total $51,700. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, The Sabbath, Names in Fashion, Hodgepodge, Pro Wrestling Terminology, Lincoln Blinken, and Nod, in quotation marks, N-O-D. Mary seemed to struggle a little bit with the uh, the Sabbath category. Yeah. Which I thought was interesting, but I wondered if maybe, uh, just like her particular denomination or whatever, if, if she just like, it might have been a, a, ca- a case of like, you know, being too close Mm-hmm. to the yeah. material to like be able to to work her way to the answer you know like mm-hmm. being like i know a whole bunch of stuff about what you just asked about and i'm not sure what you're getting at like that that certainly could be it yeah we had some we had some misses she she did get <clears throat> mary did get the 200 dollar level um of the sabbath which was asking for a colorful edict that banned things like sunday shopping um, that's blue laws. Um, and then we had a triple stumper at the $400 level. Exodus 35.3 bans doing this on the Sabbath. Hence the Jewish dish cholent, which can go on the stove Friday and cook until Saturday lunch. Jonathan tried 
what is cooking and Mary tried what is work. Both of those are disallowed. Yeah. For like Sabbath observant Jews. Uh, but the particular verse citation is about lighting a fire. Ah, uh, okay, okay, because it is Exodus thirty-five three, right? Got it. Um, and yeah, and that that lighting a fire prohibition um, gets interpreted in interesting ways in modern times, and that's like that that's where not using electronics hmm. comes from, because like completing a circuit is like uh, comparable to sure lighting a fire. Because uh, we don't we don't really light fires now, so like yep. mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. And um, she ended up at the at the end of the round getting but sort of stumbling over the $1,000 clue. Early Christians observed the Sabbath on Saturday, but Sunday was the day for this commemoration of the Last Supper. She rang in and then looked sort of dumbfounded for a second and eventually blurted out, what is the Lord's Supper? And that was one of the answers they would have accepted. I mean, I guess I I would also have been spooked after the like cooking slash work, mm-hmm. lighting a fire one. Um, they would have accepted the Lord's Supper or Eucharist or communion yeah. for this one. Yeah. Um, and that category also is where we find daily double number one, which is at the twelve hundred dollar level. And Mary finds this one. It's the eighteenth pick. Um, she has twenty eight hundred. Uh, Jonathan's at fourteen hundred. Bilal's at eight hundred. And she wagers 2000 and has the clue at a Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints sacrament meeting. A young man may talk about two years away as one of these. She tries what is a sabbatical, uh, but they were looking for a missionary. Yeah. You know, Mormon, Mormon missionaries, the young people kind of going abroad often for, for two years. Um yeah, yeah, that's. Uh, <laughs> I, I feel like sabbatical is like that's a very pastorish answer, <laughs> right? Um, <laughs> yeah, abroad is not that can be interpreted because oftentimes it's just to another part of the United States. Yeah, that's true. Like another um, city somewhere. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd forgotten that that was the case. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Your, your mission can take you anywhere that they want to send you. So sometimes it is overseas. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of times yeah. it's to south, uh, to like Central America or or Mexico. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the the people I know who have gone on missions have happened to go to other countries, but but yes, you're right. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Mary's in the lead with 2,800. Uh, Bilal is at 2,200. Jonathan's at 1,200. Uh, and we have the double jeopardy categories Shakespeare's insults, food forward, 80s TV, double letter geography, stars and stones, and triple rhyme time. Triple rhyme time in a regular season game? <sighs> Unbelievable. It That must, you know, that must have been the category that was supposed to be in the last tournament of champions, but wasn't. Hmm. No, no triple rhyme time in the last tournament of champions, which must mean must mean that this was the lost uh, category. It's the only possible explanation. I feel like it was. Well, no, you know what? I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna say they wrote it easier than your average triple rhyme time. No, there was some challenging um, stuff in there. Yeah, that that two thousand dollar clue. The removed facial hair now hallowed. The sheared beard revered. I don't. Uh. uh. I don't, I don't even buy that as like a no acceptable acceptable. It like, is 
I'm now hallowed. Yeah, yeah. I don't get. Yeah, it, it was too obscure. It's one of. It's like it's like setting off my. Um, those words are in the wrong order. Uh-huh. Alarm, where like uh-huh. like you know how to speak a language, but you can't explain it. Like it is obvious. It should obviously be the revered sheared beard. Uh huh. Yeah. No. Right. I yeah. I agree. And I. I don't know. Even that. I was like. I saw now hallowed, and I'm like, okay, so holy, sacred, like, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't think revered is hallowed. I, that does not seem to be the same idea to me. Anyway, it's not important. It was a tough one. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> let me just say in the food forward category, which was about kind of you know things that are now or at some point have been kind of the you know the new innovation in uh or in, in food the two thousand dollar level asked for what right. nabisco cracker was created around 1900 by the same guy who created shredded wheat and bilal got that one it is trisket although like because we'd had kellogg a couple minutes before i was sort of primed on um <laughs> Uh, inventions, food inventions that were supposed to curb, oh goodness, how am I going to phrase it? I, I was thinking about graham crackers. You can go look up that history. <laughs> okay. um, but the, the Trisket, it turns out somebody was trying to figure out where it got its name and they were assuming that like that try was like triple, like, you know, maybe there was some kind of three about it. Mm-hmm. That It is electricity biscuit. Yep. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's the electricity biscuit because it's used. There's yep. a great Twitter thread about this. Like, go find it. It's awesome. Yep. Yes. Also, why? At this point, why do we still have triscuits? I love triscuits. What? You are a unicorn. I. This makes no sense. Nobody I'm just likes a triscuits. Girl who likes triscuits? Triscuits are fine if they are literally coated in butter and cheese. They are. I I think they are a great neutral palate for a good cheese. I don't like the water crackers. I don't understand why people continue to put cheese on the on the cars water crackers. Um, I, uh, yeah, I don't. That's that's fair. Okay, we can find common ground there. But triscuits, ugh, ugh. like why? Anyway, the, it's fine. It's fine. You know what? I am so people can, perplexed. People can like what they like. That's fine. It's. Fine. I wish they would stop making new flavors of triscuits and shapes and like thicknesses and like <laughs> you mean ways they, to make you them wish they'd stop trying to make triscuits good <laughs> the point of tr- the triscuit is, is to, to be something be neutral neutral so that you can put like a big old slab of cheddar on it and you've got like a little like cr- like a little like crunch texture with your with your cheese right like i do not want it to taste like rosemary or chipotle i don't want it to be a triangle um how dare they make it into a triangle why why would you reduce the salt or the fat like why (laughs) um triscuit is perfect at being what it is (laughs) uh that is Oh, that's extremely apologetic. That's very funny. <laughs> uh, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> who does it? Like, what? Do, what? What is your perfect cracker for? Like a cheese that you like? 
Okay, I'm not going to get into this with you because cheese is your domain, and okay. I don't want to. I don't want to come off as a uh, a troglodyte or anything like that. So, um, I I will I will concede to you that perhaps I have not given Triscuits a fair shake when it comes to cheese conveyance. Mm-hmm. It's a I, vehicle. For, it's a good vehicle for cheese. I will agree with that. I, I like I said. If it's covered in butter and cheese, okay. There we go. All right. Yes, you did. I, you did say that. I will accept that. That's fine. That's fine. I I can do that. But as a as a cracker in and of itself, it's like I don't know. I'm just like uh, anyway. But yeah. th- then again, if you're not using it as a cracker in and of itself, we have spent way too long talking about this. Okay. <laughs> Have a Triscuit podcast. Uh, all right, take us to the Daily Double. Okay. Uh, Daily Double number two? Yeah. Daily Double number two is in the Shakespeare's insults category. Uh, the $800 level is pick number four is pretty early. Jonathan found it. Uh, at this point, he's at 6000 Bilal is at 2200 Mary is at 2800 He wagers 3000 It's a clue in the Comedy of Errors. Dromeo describes Nell as hip to hip. She is spherical, like this name of Shakespeare's venue. And he gets that correct with what is globe. And Mayan points out that he is an actor, and so probably Shakespeare is pretty good for him. And daily double number three is in the double letter geography category at the $800 level. And Mary finds this one at the 17th pick. She's at 7,600. Jonathan's at 11,800, Bilal is at 4,200, and she wagers 3,000 and gets the clue. Moraine Lake is in this national park, established in 1885 as Canada's very first, and she gets that one correct with what is Banff. I had the hardest time remembering that it was double-letter geography. I did too. I don't know why. Me over here with Bloomfontaine <laughs> answering the yeah, which, the- which, uh, which of the three capitals... Or, no, no, there was a three capitals of South Africa question somewhere else. Uh, yeah. Um, it was just the the commercial, the chief commercial city of South Africa, because uh, Johannesburg is not one of the capitals. Right. Yes, yes, yes. Johannesburg. Yeah. It's Pretoria, Bloemfontein, and Cape Town are the capitals. But yeah, they were asking for chief commercial city, and that's that's Johannesburg. So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Jonathan is in the lead at 15,800, Bilal is at 5,400, and Mary's at 12,600, and these are like normal Jeopardy scores. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we get the Double Jeopardy, or sorry, we get the final Jeopardy category sports legends and the clue when Johnny Bench broke his record. This man wrote, I always thought the record would stand until it was broken. Uh, and they all got it correct. Uh, Bilal wrote, who is Barra? Uh, and wagered everything but $5, so he moves up to 10795 Mary wrote, who is Yogi Berra, and wagered 3300 which moved her up uh, 100 above Jonathan, but he also got it correct, and he wagered 2500 mm. which to me says just not confident in sports, but Mary could have won that game. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I think she made a good, well, I mean, I, I don't know. She could have bet more because, like, 3,300, she dropped below Bilal. It's yeah. interesting. We get to talk about wagering strategy again since it's not lock games every mm-hmm. day. Yeah. I've, for- I've forgotten we even do this. <laughs> I somehow <laughs> it's been I, months. Yes. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. 
yeah, I'm curious what's going on with Jonathan. It could be that he's looking at the category and thinking, this is really not my category and I'm not comfortable with a big bet. Or if he's trying to make a second order wager right. here. Right. Because right. if he, I mean, it is, if he, if it is, then he did it right, right? Yeah. So a second order wager means that you think that you're you are pretty confident in what your opponents are going to wager, or, you know, kind of the windows that they're going to be in, and therefore do something based on that rather than what's based on sort of, you know, mathematically optimal. Right. Like, if you were going in completely blind. So, a first order wager would be a cover bet, right? That's, you, you sort of look at the scores, and you say, you know... If I get it right, then I will win no matter what happens. But the second order wager is when you say, okay, you know, Bilal can, he can double up. Mary's probably going to wager pretty small to stay above, like she's, Mary's going to assume that Jonathan's going to make a cover bet. Mm -hmm. And so Mary will wager small assuming that Jonathan will drop way down if he misses and that she also needs to stay above Bilal's double up if he's the only one to get it right. So if you're in Jonathan's position, you can, instead of making a cover bet, make a very small wager, assuming that Mary's going to make a very small wager. And if that's what he's doing, they're like, whew, gutsy move. Yeah, really. Um, Who knows? Yeah, who knows? I'm curious what Jonathan would say about what happened here. Right. Maybe he's a listener. If you're a listener, let yeah. us know, Jonathan. Reach yeah, out. Yeah, tell us, Jonathan. We want to know. Yeah. So that brings us to Thursday. We have the contestants Ray Kimball, a retired Army officer from West Point, New York, Aline Dolan, an MFA candidate from Alston, Massachusetts, and Jonathan Fisher, an actor originally from Coral Gables, Florida, whose three-day cash winnings total $70,000. Maybe that's why he wagered what he wagered. Maybe he wanted Just to, to get, get the nice, nice round line nice of zeros. Uh, yeah. I mean, good for him if he remembered his total from the day before. I know I never did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we have the Jeopardy round categories. The 16th century, Voting USA, My First Name is a TV Show Title, Containers, Old Slang, and This is NPR. NPR is celebrating 50 years on the air in 2021. Uh, pick number one, I'm surprised they gave it to him, honestly. Uh, the clue was Mr. Berkman, a hitman who becomes Mr. Block, an actor. Jonathan rang in and said, who is Barry? And I'm pretty sure it's Barry. <laughs> oh, I did not see this one. That's, this, uh, yeah. Goodbye, Mike Richards. Right. <laughs> Ridiculous. Watching the, the Jeopardy social media accounts trying to defend that completely inexplicable call was the most painful thing in the world. Yeah. And again, I'm sorry to whoever has to run the social media accounts for Jeopardy. Like, I guess you could have just not comment, like not posted about Mm -hmm. it, but like also, I don't know. Yeah. Sucks that they pay your bills. So you like, you have to Mm -hmm. come up with a way to be like, actually it's because of blah, 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 blah. Yep. 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 
<laughs> right right next to Barry about a hitman. We had we had a clue about Arthur the Aardvark. Yeah. Because <laughs> Jeopardy is great. Like, these are two pieces of knowledge. They're both TV shows that where the, where the title of the TV show is just a, a first name. <laughs> mm-hmm. Just put them right next to each other. I could see Arthur becoming a hitman. <laughs> I, yes. you, wouldn't, you wouldn't suspect. Mm-hmm. Daily Double number one is in the 16th century category at the 800 level. It's pick number 12. Ray finds it. He is at zero. Any wages is 1,000. Jonathan is at 3,800. And Aline is at negative uh, 400. He gets a clue. In the 1540s, he wrote, Finally, we shall place the sun himself at the center of the universe. And he gets that correct with what, or who is Copernicus? Mm-hmm. So at the end of the uh, Jeopardy round, Jonathan is in the lead at 7,800, Aline is at 200, and Ray is at 4,200. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, Twister, Murder, He Wrote, Verbs, Song of Myself, whatever that means, Geotrios, and this is NPR with all correct responses, having beginning with N, having P and R somewhere afterward. This is where we had the other three South Africa cities. I forgot which day was which. Mm. In Geotrios at the $2,000 level, mm-hmm. where you were supposed to name which of the three capital cities is the administrative one uh, and part of the municipality of... How do you say that? I don't know. Schwane. Yeah, I'm not sure. That one. That's where Pretoria came up. Uh, Daily Double number two is in the Murder He Wrote category at the $800 level. And Jonathan finds this one at the fourth pick. Uh, he has 9800 at this point, raised at 4200 Aline is in the red at negative 1800 And Jonathan wagers 2500 and gets the clue. In 1902, this novelist killed Sir Charles Baskerville in book form. And Jonathan gets that one correct. That is Arthur Conan Doyle. Uh, in the Hound of the Baskervilles. Uh, Daily Double number three is in the Geo Trios category at the $1,200 level. Aline finds it. It's pick number 22. She's at 2200 Jonathan is up at 21500 and Ray is at 7400 and she bets it all. Gets the clue, Brunei, Malaysia, and this nation all have territory on the island of Borneo. We just talked about Borneo last week. In the quiz. Mm -hmm. That's right. And she gets that correct with what is Indonesia. Mm -hmm. At the end of the double Jeopardy round, Jonathan is at 23,100. Ray is at 10,200. Aline is at 3,600. And we have the final Jeopardy category, U.S. history. And the clue on September 30, 1788, William McClay and Robert Morris, both of Pennsylvania, were chosen as the first two these. Aline has tried... What are delegates to the Constitutional Convention? Question mark, question mark, question mark, smiley face, which is an impressive amount of writing to do in That's that amount of time. a lot of words and stuff. Uh, yes. And like, and like the, the electronic, like pen and tablet situation. It's hard to write with. Yeah. It's, they're not iPads. They've had them for years and years. Like a lot of years, yeah. and they're not—they're not the newest technology. Technology. No. They're more like the things you're trying to sign on at the grocery store, you know. Um, yeah. Ugh. Ugh. 
rough. So it, it's very impressive. Yes. I'm impressed. But that's not correct. Uh, she's wagered everything, so she drops to zero. Uh, Ray correctly responded, what are U.S. senators? Uh, and he wagered 10195 all but $5. Uh, he'll finish in second place. And Jonathan wagered 900 and and uh, also provided the correct answer, what are senators? Uh, which brings him up to $24,000 and gives him his fourth win. Mm-hmm. And on Friday, we have the contestants Connie Smith, a mechanical engineer from Oviedo, Florida. Nima Aguili, a lawyer and legal recruiter from Overland Park, Kansas. And Jonathan Fisher, an actor originally from Coral Gables, Florida, whose four-day cash winnings now totaled $94,000. And we have the Jeopardy round categories I, E-Y-E in quotation marks, state your name, do solemnly swear, Gray's Anatomy, Gray's G-R-A-Z-E, finish the line, and now read this. So I don't think that this is why Jonathan missed this question, but I I would like to quibble with the $400 level of do solemnly swear, uh, where the clue was, I swear on this so you know I'm telling the truth. And there was a picture. Jonathan rang in and said, what is the Holy Bible? And Mayim said, be more specific. And Jonathan said, what is the King James Bible? Which is like always <laughs> good, good Jeopardy <laughs> always choice. Always a good Jeopardy strategy. That was incorrect. Uh, Connie rang in and uh, responded, what is a stack of Bibles? Um, you know, so they were looking for the idiom, I swear on a stack of Bibles. And the picture was a stack of kind of thick black leather bound books where home viewers could make out the word holy on a number of them and uh, revised standard version on one. And I think that they redacted the word Bible out of the picture. Like I think they photoshopped the word Bible off um, off of the Bibles, but not all those books were Bibles (laughs) Um, because one of them was definitely a book of common prayer, which is um, like the The Anglican. Yeah. Like like the Anglican prayer book and and yeah and other uh, other denominations have uh similar things that i think the anglican one is kind of you know the the one that is kind of important to historically and you know it's worth knowing but like it's not a bible right it's a it's it's a prayer book it's right it's a thing that was written 1549, right? Like it, it, it is not the Bible. Um, it had the word holy on there. I wonder if it was like the Bible bound together with the Book of Common Prayer. Hard to tell. The picture was not a stack of Bibles. It was a stack. It, best case scenario, it was a stack of Bibles and other things. Right. It was a stack of books pertaining to the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, Daily Double number one is in the Now Read This category at the $400 level. And Connie finds this one at the 11th pick. She's at negative 200 at this point. Jonathan's at 2,800 and Nima is at 1,600. And she wagers 1,000 and gets the clue. Howard Rourke is to the fountainhead as John Galt is to this 1,100-page tome. And she knows that one. It's Atlas Shrugged. Yes. Your fave. Kyle. Although I would like yes and no on this clue because Howard Rourke and John Galt are both the like Randian ideal character mm. in the books. 
But in the Fountainhead, Howard Rourke is like the main character. I guess Peter. I guess the other guy's the main character. Yeah, I guess. John Galt doesn't actually show up for the first 600 pages of the book. And I have mm-hmm. shrugged. So, hmm. but Howard Rourke is there from like the start. So, I don't know. But yeah, sure, sure. If you're going to read one, read The Fountainhead. Not only because it's shorter, but it is actually just better. Atlas mm-hmm. Shrugged is not worth your time. I am Speaking not of, you just going... finished Infinite Jest, right? <laughs> I, did, I did just finish Infinite Jest. <laughs> it was okay. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure it, it lived up to its hype. Um, um, I, I've have, I feel like most of them don't. Yeah. I mean, my I felt like I felt like I should read it because the Infinite Jest people are so enthusiastic about Infinite Jest. And also I, I answered a David Foster Wallace question on my Jeopardy episode without ever ever having read any David Foster Wallace. So, you know, I was You owe it to him. Yeah, yeah. I don't like I don't know. I felt I mean, my my question actually was about the Pale King, not about Infinite Jest, but yeah, but it just it didn't it didn't totally live up to to the hype. Um, I thought, and my main reaction coming very much from being a pastor as, as I w- and knowing uh, that David Foster Wallace died by suicide as I was reading it, like I just kept being like, this was a very difficult brain to live in. Mm-hmm. Like, oof, like you can just feel feel that it was not an easy existence for David Foster Wallace. It comes through so clearly. Well, that's a big downer. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, so is Atlas Shrugged. So, <laughs> I, I yeah. have no intention of reading Atlas Shrugged. I mean, you could read you could read the first hundred pages. You get uh, the Taggart siblings and you get their conflict and you get Dagny Taggart's ideas. And that's mm. the whole book. That's it. Okay. You don't Maybe have to I'll read the that. other thousand pages because mm-hmm. that's the whole point of the book rehashed over and over again in different settings. Anyway. All right. On. I'll consider that. Okay. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Connie has the lead. She's at 5,200. Jonathan's at 4,000. And Nima will pick first. He's at 1,400. In the double Jeopardy round, where we have the categories movie titles through pictures, historic potpourri, libraries, the impassable dream, high slash low. And our last category is diaresis and umlaut words. They put an unnecessary umlaut over the O in words. Words. Uh, yeah. And uh, Mayam notes that diaresis is two dots. It looks just like an umlaut, um, but it is distinct from an umlaut because a diaresis is meant to indicate separate syllables when you have consecutive vowels. So like if you've ever seen like the word cooperate with two dots over the second O, that's a diaresis. Which today I learned. Mm-hmm. I never, never knew that. I just thought it was like, hmm, that's just an archaic thing that sometimes people put on words. Mm-hmm. Now you know. Now you know. I knew that the New Yorker was weird about using diaresis marks. <laughs> um, I'd come across that bit of information before, and that came up at the $1,200 level where they were mentioning that the New Yorker uses such a mark for this five-letter word, meaning gullible, simple, or unjaded. Uh, That's naive. I've never known the New Yorker to be pretentious or (laughs) anything like that. Yeah. Second Daily Double comes up in historic potpourri, another potpourri category in the same week. 
gets at the $2,000 level. Pick number 10 in the round, Jonathan finds it. He is at 8,800 over Nima's 3,000 and Connie's 7,600, and he wagers 2,500. Uh, and he gets the clue, also known as Deutscher Orden. This Order of Knights went to the Holy Land during the Third Crusade, and he gets that correct with what are the Teutonic Knights? Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice job, Jonathan. I did not get there. And daily double number three is at the $1,200 level of high-low at the 21st pick, and Jonathan finds this one as well. At this point, he's at 17300 uh, to Nima's 5,800 and Connie's 8,800. And he wagers 2,000 and gets the clue. Mount Whitney is the highest point in what's known as the High This. And he correctly responds, what are the High Sierras? Named after, of course, the drink High Sea. I, I would assume so. <laughs> so with the help of those two daily doubles, Jonathan is in a lock position. With 24,100 at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Connie's at 11,200 and Nima's at 7,800. So he is guaranteed a fifth win. Mm-hmm. I mean, unless he does something foolish, which he doesn't. We get the final Jeopardy category, Literature for Children. And the clue, these stories got their collective title because little Josephine Kipling insisted they be told exactly the same way each time. This was a triple stumper. I was surprised it was a triple stumper. Oh, I've never heard this. Oh, uh, I, okay. I don't know Kipling. <laughs> I, mm-hmm. I know the Jungle Book, and that's it. And and the what the White Man's Burden is that also Kipling? Yeah, that is. I was okay. going to say if but you want, if yeah, if that's you need a different. To know. That's a very different thing, though. <laughs> yeah. Um, Nima put what is the oft repeated epic, which I, I like that. Yeah, that's answer. not bad answer. Uh, that's incorrect. He put thirty four oh one. Connie wagered eleven thousand. I guess like why not? It's more than a cover bet, but for second place. But eh. uh, and what put what are the Jungle Books? Because probably couldn't think of anything else by Kipling, and that makes sense. Uh, Jonathan wagered four hundred and put what are twice told tales, which I also like that answer. Uh, but the mm-hmm. correct answer is just so stories. Mm-hmm. I had to look up twice told tales um, because that sounded like something I'd heard of. Uh, that is by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Hmm. Yeah, so I thought it was a, I thought it was a good guess. Yeah, um, yeah, and just so stories is a Kipling work that. It's stories like how the elephant got its trunk and things like that. I think that they are not actually folk tales. Mm. Um, I think that they are of Kipling's invention, mm. but I'm not super confident. Yeah, how the leopard got his spots, how the camel got his hump. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, yeah. I knew that one. Easily, um, but they also uh, just so stories were were a favorite favorite of my my step grandfather who was um, British and an actor and mm-hmm. would give very theatrical readings of his of his favorite uh, favorite children's literature. Well, there um, you go. So so yeah, I have I have a very vivid memory of those. Nice. Yeah, I'll have to look into them. Uh, so with that, Jonathan is now. Tournament of Champions bound, and it is, yeah, I mean, this this has happened before, not with a, you know, like, record-setting 
champion, right? Usually, mm-hmm. though, we see that a super champion is, you know, loses, and then the person who beats them has, you know, might lose the following game, or mm-hmm. even Emma, Emma Betcher won three games. Of course, she won as much in three games as Jonathan won in four games. Right. But, like, even that, like, the run did not go so long, uh, and he is up to five games now. So mm-hmm. we could potentially see another long run. I not put in any uh casting any aspersions. Jonathan is not playing at the level that Matt was necessarily with the results, but he's still winning and that's what matters. Mhm. Yeah. So, we'll see where this goes. It's uh it's, it's exciting. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and we have had two champions in season 38 <laughs> so far. <laughs> that's true. Which is weird to think about cuz we're what, 4 weeks in? Mm-hmm. Something like that. Yeah, we're five. We're five weeks in. Five weeks in, and we've had five two champions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. All right. All right. Um. So this is the mid episode break where we um let you know that we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash potent potables. If you have some funds available to um, throw us a couple bucks a month, we are looking to pass some of the editing work along to uh, to someone who can um, do that for us professionally. Y'all probably know at this point we are we are a pastor and a teacher. Uh, Kyle's doing all the audio editing in addition to being a full time teacher. Anyway, we we would we would love to uh, love to be able to hire someone to take that off his plate yes and uh yeah uh so if that's if that's something that you would be able to help us out with you can go check out patreon.com slash potent potables um we've got a little content there behind the paywall and uh thinking about what else we can add so thank you and if that is not something that's accessible for you or you're having to prioritize kind of how you budget, disposable income. To us, we think it's more important that you are doing something for the world and for social justice causes than um, than supporting our silly podcast. So if you're having to prioritize some causes that we care about and think are more important than us are uh, blacklivesmatter.com, communityjusticeexchange.org, and the Stop Asian Hate GoFundMe. That's right. Yes. We do have a couple of patrons that we want to thank. Mm-hmm. Uh, recent additions. Yes. Um, we have Tanner Methvin. Methvin. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Tanner. I hope that, uh, hope that I got close enough. Um, and Kelly Young, two new patrons. So thank you. Thank you very much. We very much appreciate it. We are actually getting, I think, pretty close to, uh, uh that goal. Um, I think right I now, think we so, are. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's very exciting. And we really, 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 really appreciate it. Thank you. All right. So Emily, do you have deep dive guesses? Yes, I do. I had written down Kipling, but I, I'm guessing that's, you, you just said that you don't know anything about Kipling. So I, I'm, I'm going to rule that one out. Um, mm, maybe I'm just and, misleading you. Though. Mm, okay. Uh, what about um, Nasser and or the Aswan High Dam? No, but that was my very close second choice. Actually, the reason I ruled it out because I was like, oh, there's too much to talk about here. <laughs> yeah. All right. What about um, Haydn with that chandelier clue? Mm, no, I I thought about it, but no. All right. We also had a triple stumper about where the correct response was bushel. And I thought maybe he wants to do like imperial units. 
Oh, you know I love the English arbitrary system, but <laughs> no, uh, no, we're actually. This is from the Thursday game in the Double Jeopardy round Twister, the $2,000 clue. April 3rd, 1974, saw seven tornadoes from Alabama to Indiana max out at F5 on this scale of storm intensity. And uh, that's the Fujita scale. Jonathan guessed what is the Saffir Simpson scale, which is actually the the scale for hurricanes. But the uh, scale for tornado intensity is Fujita. Uh, And I realized I didn't know that. And so uh, I decided to look into the Fujita scale and as kind of an extension of that, just the also the other like emergency related scales. So I'll at least name the other ones that you typically hear and what they refer to so that for trivia purposes, we can have that around. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> Tornadoes. Fun. <laughs> so, uh, so the Fujita scale, also known as the F scale or the Fujita Pearson scale is and was a scale for rating tornado intensity based primarily on the damage that tornadoes inflict on human-built structures and vegetation. The official Fujita scale category from F0 to F5 uh, is determined uh, after a ground or aerial damage survey or both, and depending on the circumstances, ground swirl patterns, which are known as cycloidal marks, weather radar data witness testimonies, media reports, and damage imagery, as well as photogrammetry or videogrammetry, if motion picture recording is available. That's all used to determine what uh, the the category is in the Fujita scale, as well as the measured wind speed. Uh, The Fujita scale was replaced with the enhanced Fujita scale, the EF scale, in the United States in February 2007, Canada adopted the EF scale in April of 2013. There are a number of other countries around the world that still use the Fujita scale. Uh, a number of them have also adopted the EF scale. Notably, the UK does not use it because they had their own meteorologist who came up with his own system, and they're going to be British. So the uh, the scale was introduced in 1971 by Ted Fujita, or Tetsuya Theodore Fujita is his full name. He was at the University of Chicago in collaboration with Alan Pearson, who is the head of the National Severe Storms Forecast Center, which is now known as the Storm Prediction Center. Uh, It was updated in 1973, taking into account the path length and width of a tornado. And starting in 1973, tornadoes were rated soon after their occurrence using the Fujita scale. It was also used or applied retroactively to tornadoes reported between 1950 and 1972 in the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration National Tornado Database. And Fujita himself and a guy named Tom Grazulis of the Tornado Project also took the scale and rated tornadoes uh, that had been reported uh, Fujita rated them all the way back to 1916, and Grazulis looked back at tornadoes in the U.S. all the way to 1880. Uh, so they pretty much any recorded uh, tornado in the United States has been given a designation, whether that's totally accurate or not. Though each damage level is associated with a wind speed, the Fujita scale is effectively a damage scale, um, and so therefore it's kind of objective and not particularly accurate, which is why the enhanced Fujita scale was formulated uh, using the process of expert elicitation, which is eliciting experts to Mm -hmm. come up with a a better system. 
the criticism of the EF scale is that they are, it is biased toward United States construction practices, which most tornadoes in the world occur in the United States. So if there's going to be a bias, it's probably going to be in favor of United States stuff. Just real quick for these wind speeds, the Fujita scale was also criticized because its wind speeds were like way overestimated. F0 is light damage up to 73 uh, miles per hour or from like 40 to 72 miles per hour. Some damage to chimneys, branches broken off of trees, shallow root trees pushed over, signboards damaged. Uh, F1 is 73 miles an hour to 112 miles an hour with moderate damage. The lower limit is the beginning of hurricane wind speed, like peeling surface off of roofs, mobile homes pushed off foundations or overturned, vehicles pushed off roads. F2 is 113 to 157 miles per hour. Uh, this is significant damage, roofs torn off, mobile homes demolished, boxcars overturned, large trees snapped or uprooted, high-rise windows broken and blown in, and light object missiles generated. That's... F3, now this is just F3, is 158 to 206 miles per hour with severe damage, like, you know, turning over trains and ripping up trees and forests and everything. F4 is 207 to 260 miles per hour, called devastating damage, well-constructed houses leveled, structures with weak foundations blown away some distance, and uh, F5 is 216 or 261 to 318 miles per hour, which could, you know, disintegrate strong frame houses and make automobiles fly through the air faster, like farther than 100 meters. Yeah, so th those wind speeds get up there. Yeah. Really high. These categories are also grouped. So F0 and F1 are considered weak. F2 and F3 are considered strong. And F5 and F... Or F4 and F5 are considered violent, uh, which are also in the intense range. Pretty quickly, Fujita and others recognized that they needed to, like, get some engineering analysis on the scale. Like, in the 70s, this research already started. They showed that tornado wind speeds required to inflict the described damage were actually much, much, much lower than the F scale indicated particularly for the upper categories. It's much, much slower, and we see significant damage. So one thing that the enhanced scale did was significantly reduced the designated wind speeds. Fujita tried to uh, address these problems with a modified Fujita scale in 1992, but that didn't get any traction because the National Weather Service didn't want to have to go through the work to revamp everything at that time. But then in 2007, uh, the enhanced Fujita scale was put in place. So the enhanced... Uh, enhanced Fujita scale goes from EFU, which is no surveyable damage. Like, there may have been a tornado, but it didn't really do much. EF0 is 65 to 85 miles an hour with minor damage. EF1 is 86 to 110 miles per hour with moderate damage. EF2 is 111 to 135 with considerable damage. EF3 is 136 to 165 with severe damage. EF4 is 166 to 200 with devastating damage, and EF5 is anything over 200 miles per hour with incredible damage. So, you know, we there are tornadoes that get over 200 miles an hour, but it's extremely rare. The frequency is 0.05%. Mm -hmm. So EF5 is extremely, extremely rare. In fact, including the tornadoes that were looked backward in time, like in the 1950s after the scale was 
was put into place, there are only a total of 62 worldwide officially rated Category 5, like F5 or EF5 since mm-hmm. 1950. 59 of those have been in the United States, one in France, Russia, and Canada, at least a couple in Germany, although those, the year, I mean, the years <laughs> designated for those are 1800 and 1764. So mm. who, who's to say? Really. But since 1950, yeah, it's only been like 60, 62 F5 tornadoes. So that's extremely rare, but that is the most intense. That's like, you know, destroying everything in its path and and launching, you know, cars and trains and stuff Mm -hmm. out of its way. So I mentioned Tetsuya Theodore Fujita. He was the kind of pioneer of this. He was a Japanese-American meteorologist. Uh, He was born on October 23rd, 1920, and died on November 19th, 1998. Uh, He studied severe weather, of course. He did research at the University of Chicago. And he is, of course, best known for his Fujita scale. Uh, He also discovered downbursts and microbursts, and through his work also uh, significantly helped with like the training of pilots and, and other people who have to deal with things like severe weather. He, he was often called Mr. Tornado by his, uh, associates and the media. He worked on Project Nimrod, which was a meteorological field study of severe thunderstorms and their damaging winds, and that was used to help train, you know, student uh, pilots and things like that. That's like the Fujita scale and what it talks about Mm -hmm. and who Fujita was. Some other emergency-related scales that we have, uh, one is called the simply the Rhone Emergency Scale. Uh, It is a scale on which the magnitude or intensity of an emergency is measured. It was first proposed in 2006 and further refined in 2007. It's been kind of like accepted among experts, but it's not one that we really use like in common parlance. It can be tailored for use at any geographic level, and it's simply used to monitor the development of an ongoing emergency event and forecast the probability and nature of potential developing emergency. The Rhone scale simply looks at scope, topography, and speed of change, and it has formulas for that, like scope is equal to raw scope over max scope, where raw scope equals (laughs) victims per population plus monetary losses per GDP uh, raised to the power of W, where W is... (laughs) I'm not going to get into all of the mathematics of it, but they have like very, very like defined parameters for how to quantify an emergency and determine like how to respond and how to plan for it based on the Rhone scale, R-O-H-N hmm. emergency scale. Yeah. Um, but then there are others like we have the Beaufort scale, of course, which is used to measure uh, wind force. This is where we get the terminology of like gale force mm-hmm. uh, or like storm, violent storm, hurricane force winds. Also just breezes, lots of breezes. Level two is Light breeze. Level three is gentle breeze. Level four is moderate breeze. Level five is fresh breeze. Level six is strong breeze. (laughs) (laughs) And after the breezes, we get to uh, high wind, moderate or near gale, then gale force, severe gale, and that kind of thing, all the way up to hurricane. And that's the Beaufort scale. The modified Mercalli intensity scale was developed by Giuseppe Mercalli, and it is a seismic intensity scale, which... We also uh, use the Richter scale, mm-hmm. which can also measure seismic magnitude and intensity. Uh, however, the the Richter scale, also known as the local magnitude scale, uh, has some shortcomings. And so now most seismological authorities use other scales such as the moment 
magnitude scale. It's a bit more accurate and it uses um, more measures, right? It, it looks at surface mm-hmm. wave magnitude, local magnitude, things like that. Um, so we use the moment magnitude scale now actually more than the Richter scale, although a lot of people will still refer to seismic activity in terms of the, the Richter scale. There's also the Saffir-Simpson scale, which we mentioned before. That's uh, the category of hurricane, right? One, two, three, four, five. And then also tropical storm and tropical depression underneath that. Mm -hmm. There's the volcanic explosivity index, which we don't really have to deal with much if you live in the United States, if you don't live in like Hawaii. But I just like the names. Level Mm -hmm. zero of the uh, volcanic Explosivity index is Hawaiian. <laughs> level one is uh, Hawaiian slash Strombolian. Level two is Strombolian slash Vulcanian. Level three is Vulcanian or Palaian. Level four is Palaian or Plinian. And the descriptions are like effusive, gentle, explosive, catastrophic, cataclysmic, paroxysmic, <laughs> colossal, super colossal, and mega colossal. Like if you were to throw one of those words at me, I would like any of them, I'd All be like, of them oh, that's, sound yeah, bad. that's the worst. That's the yeah. worst possible thing you can uh-huh. be, <laughs> right? How is cataclysmic level four and mega colossal is level eight? Like, <laughs> it's just, I, it's, Could- I don't know. Could I also note that, like, we started with Hawaiian and Strombolian, where it's like, are we talking about volcanoes? Are we talking about what we're going to get at the pizza place? Um, And you had to get to, like, the the third, which was level two, right? Right. Uh, uh, Before before it was clear that this was not Italian restaurant. Mm. Still. Could be, though. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also have the International Nuclear Event Scale, or the INES. It was developed in order to enable prompt communication of safety, significant information in case of nuclear accidents. All of the terminology is within, it does use language about accidents, right? Levels, Mm -hmm. level zero is deviation, which has no safety significance. Level one is anomaly. Level two is an incident. For instance, the Shika nuclear power plant in Japan in 1999 was covered up until 2007, apparently. Uh, hmm. And that exposure to a member of the public and, you know, uh, and, and things like that. Level three is a serious incident. Level four is accident with local consequences. So like the SL1 experimental power station in 1961 had three operators die. You know, level five is accident with wider consequences. That's Three Mile Island. Level six is a serious accident. And then level seven is a major accident. And that includes Chernobyl and Fukushima. Mm-hmm. Actually, those are the only two level seven accidents are Chernobyl and Fukushima. Uh, and then the last one is the that I want that I'll mention is the air quality index, which is just pretty straightforward. It's like how bad is the air, and based on different you know particulates, different uh, different pollutants, things like that. And that's real easy. It just goes from very good to hazardous. Mm-hmm. So you, it's it's simple. So so there we go. That's what I got for you: the Fujita scale and other other scales to know this is this has been surprisingly enjoyable (laughs) Um, (laughs) that volcano one though yeah i also it's interesting realizing that uh, i can't remember some specific examples now but some of the like classifications that you've that you've named i would not have assumed they were technical terms right like near gale force right um i would have assumed was like it's just the way people talk about it yeah so this is yeah. this has been fun. Yeah. Good. All right, so your your quiz 
is just based on things related to what I talked about in the quiz, whether it's tornadoes or Fujita or other scales. It's all tangential. Okay. And by tangential, I mean maybe related by one word. So it's it's general knowledge. All right. I'm psyched. All right. So here we go. Question one. Ted Fujita was living in Kokura during the Second World War, uh, which is a city in Japan. Kokoro was the intended target for nuclear attack, but on August 9th, 1945, the city was obscured by clouds and smoke from the neighboring city of Yahata, which had been firebombed the day before. So instead, an atomic bomb was dropped elsewhere for five points each. What was the name of that plutonium bomb, and which city did it destroy? Oh. Plutonium bomb. There, there were two bombs, and the cities are Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and I should know which is which, but I do not. Um, and I'm trying to bring... I know that I know the name of at least one and probably both bombs. I'm trying to bring them to mind. Um, plutonium bomb. That's so, what's supposed to help me differentiate the two, right? Yes. One was plutonium. The other was uranium. All right. Okay. I think that the two bombs were Little Boy and Fat Man. And I think I've got them matched up to the correct cities, but I'm not sure if I have, like... All right, we're going to go with Nagasaki and Fat Man and hope that that's a 10 and not a 0. Oh, that was a good coin flip. It is Fat Man and Nagasaki. Ah, thank God. Ah, great. Um, there you go. That's not an appropriate response to like getting a question correct about it. Right, about... Like, ugh. Yeah, like, about a major, major, yeah. not just war crime, but crime against humanity. Sure. Yep, 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 yep. But yes, that is it. So, yeah, Fat Man is a plutonium bomb and... Uh, or was a new plutonium bomb. And Little Boy was a uh, an enriched uranium bomb. Uranium bomb. bomb. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so, there you go. You got 10 points. Question two. The Richter scale was used to measure seismic intensity of earthquakes. Andy Richter is a comedian who has served as a sidekick of what late-night host who retired for good earlier this year? Oh, no. Um, which late-night host? I don't, I don't know who Andy Richter is the sidekick for, although I do know, I know the name, but like... I know that like the late night shows are kind of a blind spot for me. Retired for good earlier this year. I'm sure that I'm going to groan when I hear the response. I'm just going to say Jay Leno. Ooh, it is Conan O'Brien. It is uh it is Conan O'Brien. He was the other one that I was thinking of. Uh, yeah. Okay. Jay Leno's been out of it for a few more years. Yeah, I remember that like one of the ones like I, I even. I know both of them. Um, I remember that, like, kind of one of the that that somebody had had uh, come back, right? So Recently. yeah, so Jay Leno retired from mm-hmm. the the Tonight Show. Was that Jay Leno? I don't know. Whatever, whatever it was, <laughs> I always forget which title goes with this. So I think it was the Tonight Show because that's with uh, Jimmy Fallon now, right? 
I think so. I mean, it's a huge oh, blind who, spot for yeah, me. Yeah, who knows? Okay, Jimmy so, Fallon definitely is on the television sometimes. Right. So I can tell you that. Jay, Jay Leno retired. Conan O'Brien got the gig. Uh, for whatever reason, a bunch of people just did not like him doing that job. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I like Conan O'Brien, but a lot of people had problems with him. So he got axed after a very short amount of time, and Jay Leno came back to host it, and then... Leno retired again, and Jimmy Fallon, if that's the same show, Jimmy Fallon mm. is the host and has been the host. Um, but Conan started his own uh, show again. I think it was on TBS. And, oh, okay. and uh, went until June of this year. And Andy Richter was his his sidekick. Right. Uh, okay, question three. A movie question. Uh-oh. Okay. Twister was the second highest grossing film of 1996. It trailed significantly behind what other action film released in early July of that year? This has got to be Independence Day. That is Independence Day. Yes. I was like, should I put that it's also sci-fi? Should I put Will Smith? I'm like, ah, that's enough. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's Independence Day. Yeah. So Independence Day made like $850 and Twister made like $460 or something like that. Like, it was not even close. Independence Day made just so much money. Yeah. All right, you're 20 points. Question four. Fujita and fajita look similar as words, but have very different etymologies. Fajita shares its Latin root with what political ideology much in the news of late due to its symbology concerning bundling of things? Ah, it's got to be fascism. Well, it is fascism. That's correct. Yes. It's uh, <laughs> great. The etymology of fajita and fascism are the same Latin root, because apparently you just bundle things together, and that's where that comes from. <laughs> so, so cool. That feels good. Maybe that feels really good. Promising a fajita truck on every block. <laughs> <laughs> I'd be okay with that. Yeah. Uh, all right. You're at 30 points. Question five. The 1974 outbreak was a massive occurrence of tornadoes in the American Midwest. Not quite an outbreak, but definitely an increase in something else occurred during that year. In April, the U.S. Census Bureau determined that the human population had reached and surpassed what milestone number? It seems paltry in comparison to today, only 47 years later. Hmm. 1974. All right. We're looking for, like, the number, like, the human population. Yeah. That we what, what yeah, big milestone? What big number. milestone? Okay, so I am remembering that we were approaching five billion in like the early nineties. I remember like I remember being a little kid and having like almost five billion be the population number I was hearing about. And so I'm trying to decide kind of how much it's got to be a round number of billions. And I think it's going to be one, two or three, two, two billion. Well, not not quite that paltry. It was four billion. Four billion. Okay. But all right. Even so, we're at seven. We're past seven billion. I believe we're past seven. Yeah. Yeah. Like 47 years and we've almost doubled the human population. Mm hmm. Like. Yeah, it's shocking. I yeah. mean, I know medicine has gotten much, much better and food availability and all that. And like all that is, all of that is good. All of that is good. 
It's yeah. just, it, it, it blows my mind that when my parents were born, the human population was literally half of what it is now. Uh-huh. When yeah. you look at the entirety of human history, like how long it's been, and it's been less than my parents' lifetime. Yeah. To, to double from three and a half billion. Anyway. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to, rem- I can't remember the exact, like the exact number, um, but I, like some, some kind of thing that was, something I came across, what was making a point about given sort of the growth of the human population, you would think that the number of humans who are presently alive are like the tiniest little fraction of the number of humans who have existed in all of history. But like, because of population growth, like, it's not actually that stark. No. (laughs) It's like, yeah, a huge percentage of every human ever is still alive. Alive right now. now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's wild. That's so so weird to me. Mm-hmm. All right. Anyway, well, I blew a few questions, but I got that's a few. Okay. That's okay. Yeah, you're you're thirty points, and we're going okay. into the final. Yep. And the final, uh, I'm going to say, is twentieth century classical music. Twentieth century classical music, and the category here is, and the the sort of unifying theme is scales. I have 30 points. I'm going to wager 29. Okay. You said scales, and that just made me realize, oh, I could have easily written a question about scales, <laughs> but it's not. Um, here's a question. Ted Fujita worked on Project Nimrod. Nimrod, a name associated with the Tower of Babel story, is also the title of a movement from a well-known work of music. Perhaps the allusion to the biblical story was pointing to the fact that the original theme of the work is a mystery that the composer never revealed. What work of music is that? I don't think I know this. If I add it's by Edward Elgar, does that help? Well, now that makes me think that I should know it. Elgar. Oh, well, wait. What is it by... Ah, what is it by Elgar that I'm supposed to be able to remember it's somewhere in my brain i do not think that this is correct i think i'm dropping to one point but pomp and circumstance is the thing that is coming to mind for elgar so i'm gonna i'm gonna say that and live with it that is by elgar uh but this is the enigma variations uh, yep that was somewhere very far in the back of my brain Um, as a thing that I was supposed to know. No, that was a totally fair question. And good quiz. Thanks. Uh, so Nimrod, the movement from Enigma Variations, Nimrod is, is probably recognizable. You, you have probably heard it in a movie or, you know, in some kind of like pop culture context. And Enigma Variations is called Enigma Variations because it's a set of variations without the original theme. Um, so a, huh. a a theme and variations style piece of music is a like classical like tradition goes mm-hmm. back for hundreds of years. You have the main theme that is stated at the beginning, and then a series of variations after it, where you take that theme and you vary it and you make it different. Enigma Variations is simply the variations without you knowing what the original theme is. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Well, Emily, I'm I'm terribly sorry. I knocked you down to one point there. That's okay. I'll take my one point and I will put it with the rest of my points. 
Yeah, you can put uh, it with your like what hundred point <laughs> games that you've gotten. Like hundred and ten point games. I have had some hundred point games, haven't I? Um, yes. Yeah. Well, this was a this was a fun quiz, although I, although I bombed at the end, and a, and a great deep dive. So thanks for that, and uh, and for podcasting with me. And thank you listeners for spending your time with us. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review if you would. If you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash potent potables. And if you have friends who are into Jeopardy, let them know about our podcast. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com. And our website is potentpod.com. That's right. We'll be back next week with another week of Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker.